We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Hi there, sports fans. This is Rut Rush, along with Bob Elson, speaking to you from Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts, where today our Chicago White Sox take on the league-leading Boston Red Sox in the third game of a four-game series against these tough Boston Red Sox players. It'll be a there, Yastrzemski and Scott. In the outfield for the White Sox, Williams in left, A.G. in center, and Ken Berry in right. Hit and run with Matt Spiegel, Sunday mornings on The Score. That's awesome. Baseball sound from 1967 this morning right here on Hit and Run on 670 The Score. The 1967 pennant race might be the greatest pennant race of all time. I do not say that lightly, but... Think about it. There were five teams involved in the American League all the way through the 15th of August. At the 15th of August, there were five teams within three games of the top of a divisionless American League. And as you went into the final weekend, the final weekend of the season, you had four teams with realistic chances. The Angels faded away, but then the Boston Red Sox led by that man, Yaz. The Detroit Tigers, led by Al Kaline. The Minnesota Twins, led by Harlem, uh, Harmon Killebrew. And the Chicago White Sox. As, and, and, and the man you just heard discussed right there was in that outfield and a part of some very good White Sox teams, a couple of them in big-time pennant races in 64 and 67, and has had a fascinating life in baseball overall. He joins us right now on the Alpamonte Ford Hotline. It is Ken Berry the Bandit right now on Hit and Run on 670 The Score. What's up, Ken? How are you? Good morning. Well, we're down in Topeka, Kansas, trying to keep our heads down like everybody else. Yeah, I hope your family is safe and, and sane down there. You doing all right, Ken? Keep Everybody's safe? doing fine. Good, 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 good. Uh, Topeka, the Little League is named after you down there, isn't it, Ken? Well, back in 1969, uh, there were eight guys in the southwest part of Topeka where there was actually nothing but farms, decided they wanted to start a a Little League, and they asked, called me up, said, we'd like to name it after you. I told them I was only hitting 230 that year. Why don't they pick on somebody else? (laughs) And uh, they said, no, we're going to name it after you, so... It's been there since 69, and uh, now there's about 2,000 kids that play there every year. That's awesome. Think about that. This is, this is the life in baseball for Ken Berry. Even here at the age of 80, you got a whole little league named after you, keeping your connection to the game. Um, Ken went to Wichita State, a future college baseball power, Wichita State, um, and scouted by Ted Lyons, the legendary White Sox pitcher. He's one of the guys who came down to see you at Wichita, right? Yeah, he drove all the way out from Louisiana. My uh, coach out there in, in liberal Kansas, clearing the panhandle, said, uh, I think we've got some guys on our team that you ought to look at. So he came out. He ended up signing myself and uh, another guy, a friend of mine from Topeka, Kansas. And then there, Phil Hips signed as a second baseman with the Phillies. 
and a guy named Dave Busby signed with the Red Sox and went to Waterloo, Iowa, and played against me my first year in the minor leagues. He won 23 or 24 games, blew out his arm, and that was it. See, that's you. You will not believe some of the things that have been involved in the baseball life of Ken Berry, including one of the great baseball movies of all time. But I got to ask you about that pennant race in 67, Ken, and we'll talk about the bandit and where that nickname came from and everything like that. But that 67 pennant race is an all-timer. The White Sox had a great chance, lost five in a row uh, down the stretch there, and the Red Sox and, and Yaz were the, were the ones that, that emerged did it, did it, how bad did it sting at the time? And, and does it, does it still hold some sting for you all these years later, Ken? Well, the, the, we lost four in a row. We lost uh, two, a doubleheader in Kansas city. We went home to play the Washington centers who are probably the worst team in baseball. They beat us Ortega pitched a one hitter. And then I can't remember Britannia, maybe the second game they beat us that game. And then we end up winning the third game. And all I remember is driving down I-55 heading for St. Louis and listening to the Angels and the Tigers, I believe, playing in uh, Detroit. And eating you know, my heart out. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, eating your heart out. It's, I, I, I feel you, Ken. I always, I'm always amazed when I look back on that year and I come across Carl Yastrzemski's numbers in that September. They always stop me cold. The whole season's amazing, but the final 10 games of that year, Yaz hit 541 with four homers and 14 RBIs. The final six games, he hit 619, 13 for 21. I think he was six for seven with six RBIs in the final two games, the, the doubleheader there. So he kind of stepped up and, and, and took that season on his shoulders, didn't he? Uh, if I was a manager, I would have had a little bit more insight, I believe, uh, and not pitch to him. <laughs> my, my approach, you know, he and I've had people that ask me, you know, hey, who who do you respect or who did you uh, admire that you played against? Yaz and K-Line were probably the two that, that really stood right out. It was really easy to see that. Yeah. Yeah, well, K-Line just, just passed right, a couple of weeks ago. I know, rest in, saw that, yeah. Yeah, rest in peace to Al K-Line. Did, did you get to know some of those guys? I mean, you look, you're, you're on a Sports Illustrated cover with Mickey Mantle. You're, you're having an all-star season, uh, make an all-star game, with, and, and hanging around. I, I know you pinch hit against Tom Seaver in that one. I, I think that ended the all-star game, if, if memory serves. <laughs> It definitely ended it. I, I don't think I want to get into that, but uh, as much, I don't know how much time you have, but I was selected by the coaches and the managers to, yeah. as the number four pick, and they took five outfielders. So I was number four. I went, we went into Baltimore to play, and right before the All Star break, and Hank Bauer said he wasn't going to take me. Well, nobody bothered to check on that, so. He didn't take me, and then Frank Robinson slid into Al Weiss, hit his head on his knee, got double vision. The next day, uh, K-Line broke a knuckle on the water cooler in uh, Detroit when he popped up with the bases loaded, and Bauer says, okay, I'll take you. So I go to Anaheim. I sit on the – that was a long game. It was about a 15- or 16-inning game. I'm sitting on the end of the bench hoping I can get in to maybe make a – a play or something, and uh, the last out of the game, I've been sitting for five and a half hours. Oh. He yells down. He says, Barry, get a bat. 
So that was it. I went up against Seaver, who, you know, obviously he's in his prime, and I uh, I was been sitting for five hours. I had no chance. Oh, that's, that's just cruel. The one time you get to an all-star game. But he's there right. you are. That's all right. That's yeah, all right. I made it. <laughs> yeah, you damn right you did. That's one there. more... It's one more than I made, uh, Ken Berry. Yeah. Um, you got Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Mickey Mantle, Harmon Killebrew, Tony Oliva in that game, um, oh, Al yeah. Kaline, all, all, all these guys. Did did you learn stuff from them? Did you did you get a chance during your career to talk to those guys and pick some stuff up? No. Uh, you know, back when I played, uh, we had a little different uh, thing going on than they do nowadays. Nowadays, you slide into second base. You can't try to break up a double play. You slide in. You get up, you pat the uh, opposition who just put you out, pat him on the butt, run off the field, he pats you on the back, and you, you clear out. Back when we played, uh, Eddie Stanky, if you talked with somebody on the other team for more than like five seconds before the game, it was a $50 fine. I mean, hmm. you, it, there was no, no love between the two teams. And after the game, he said, hey, you want to go out and eat with a guy? Go out and eat with him, but don't stand around talking to him before the game. So, you know, every, that along with a lot of other things, it's changed a lot. Ken Berry, the bandit, is with us here on Hit and Run on 670 The Score. Matt Spiegel here with you. All right, I did not know some of this about old Comiskey Park, at least in the 60s. Um, I've been lucky enough to know the sod father, Roger Bossard, pretty well. And he is, I yep. believe, the son of a son of a son of a sodsman. He's like fourth generation uh, yep. a groundskeeper. Um, but in 1967, you lead the White Sox along with Don Buford with a 241 batting average. Now, that's low to, to, to lead I the league. Explain it. Yeah, I please can explain do. That. Please do. From uh, home plate all the way about two thirds to the pitcher's mound. Uh, it, it accidentally got uh, wet, and it was so wet that if you walked out toward the pitcher's mound, you could see the, the water seep up around the bottom of your shoes. And uh, it was just funny that we had Peters, Horland, Buzzhart, Pizarro, and one other, I can't remember who it was, sinker ball pitchers, and we had some guys that didn't have great range, Pete Ward, Ron Hansen, Jerry Dare, and Moose Cowan. We had these guys uh, in the infield. So Stanky was playing the defensive approach. He he was not not helping us out as hitters. He was helping our pitchers, which helped us win games. So that's why I mean we played a lot of two to one, one to nothing, four to two games, and uh, that was basically the reason. And uh, the year before, I believe, or year after, they put in uh, the AstroTurf. I hit over 270. So, you know, it was uh, it was like, okay, so- sacrifice for your team, and we win. But but the hitters really had to had to fight the bullet. Man, that is that that is one way to manipulate. The, uh, the the opposition that actually it, it hits it's your own team you can't get away with that stuff now in Major League Baseball. Um, and I never can, held it against Roger Bossardor's dad, Gene. Good, they're, they're good, <laughs> good because they, they were just doing, I'm sure, what they were told, right? As, they're great as, people. They're great people. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, the Bandit was your nickname because of your propensity to rob home runs, and you know uh, some of us have grown up seeing. 
some some incredible outfielders steal home runs. I always think of Tory Hunter of the Twins, so good at it. Ken Griffey, Bo Jackson, some of these guys. Mike Trout now is is elite. Jim Edmonds used to be so good at it. And I have often wondered whether that's something that you practice. Was that something you practiced, Ken? Every every day. Uh, we had batting practice uh, for 15 or 20 minutes per group. So we had three groups that would hit. So for the uh, group I hit in, I, I would hit, then I'd go to center field. I told the pitchers, get out of my way because I'm going to try to save you runs during the game. Let me do my thing. I'd put my hat down. And then I would chase every ball that I conceivably thought I could maybe get to, and I could look back and see where my hat was. So that's how I established my range. I would go up on the fence. I would dive in the gaps. I did everything that I would do in the game while I was practicing. And then when I got with the Angels, I had my best year May 1st, I stopped taking batting practice, and I shagged the entire uh, batting practice, 45 minutes. Hmm. My, my routine was shag 45 minutes, lose my five pounds, go in and eat two Hershey bars and drink a, a big milk, lay down and take a 20-minute nap and go out and play and never take batting practice. And I hit two, 290 that year. <laughs> so you explain that to me. I have no idea. Well, that that's awesome. First, I, I love the the two Hershey bars and a big milk. But here, I'll, yeah. I'll explain this. I'll explain it this way: If you think about hitting too much, it doesn't necessarily make you better, right? Well, I I felt like that. You know, you only have so many good swings, and mm-hmm. if you if you get in batting practice and you you're in a groove, and I told my kid this. He played professionally, played a little for the White Sox. I said, if you're in a groove. You know, don't waste it. Work on your butt for hits and go ahead and, and do a few hit runs or something and get out of there and then use up the good swings in the game. And uh, I I think that obviously there's a, there's a uh, validity for going out and taking early batting practice if you're struggling. And, you know, I have no problem with that. I just don't think that you need to – every day you have to hit because it becomes a mental thing. I'd rather work on my defense. You know, I love talking to outfielders, Ken Berry, about how they see the game. Um, Doug Glanville wrote a book uh, called Baseball the Way I See It about his vantage point from center field. Jason Hayward, we had a great conversation with Jason uh, of the Cubs. He likes right field better because he just felt like, all right, I got my wall over here. I got the I got the sideline over here. Like, I'm more in control. This is my house. Like, he felt like it was his house. What what did right? What did you what did you think about as as an outfielder? And where was your favorite place to play? Uh, I never wanted to play anywhere but center field because when I was a center fielder, first became a center fielder, I signed as a third baseman from Kansas, and then I went to spring training, and they beat me up with some fungos, and they decided I would be better in the outfield, so they sent me out to to center field and. Johnny Mossell, who was a, a great outfielder for for the White Sox, he said, "Okay, he said you're in charge. You can take any ball you want. You got priority over left, right, and the whole infield." And I said, "I love it." So that was that was my thinking. I I didn't 
worry about what I had around me except for my uh, two outfielders on my on my uh, corners there. I I just would try to work with. I knew my range. I knew the wind. I knew the sun. I knew the hitter. I knew the pitcher. And then I could move the right fielder and left fielder around as we needed to uh, to adjust for each hitter. Uh, a few more minutes with Ken Berry. I'm really enjoying this. Include, we got to talk about some of the guys you managed at AA Birmingham um, in the White Sox organization. But before that, um, let's talk about Eight Men Out, one of the great baseball movies of all time. And John Sayles was a brilliant filmmaker and very interested in realism. And so your role as a technical advisor, that, that must have been fun. What did you were you helping these guys look like ball players? Was was that well, part it was of your game? Uh we we I mean I had my hands full. You have to picture Lefty Williams uh was right handed and he was pitching left handed. Uh D B Sweeney was shoeless Joe Jackson. He's a right handed hitter and he had to hit left handed. Charlie Sheen was a good athlete. Kusak was a good athlete. Michael Rooker was a good athlete. These guys were good athletes. And every day, John Sales would say, okay, this is the scenario today. We need Charlie Sheen to run into the right field wall, lay there for a while, get up, and then come in. And, uh, you know, each, each uh, day just brought out a different scene. Uh, my shortstop, my shortstop, I mean, my second baseman was uh, – Irwin, Bill Irwin, he was a dancer. He never played baseball in his life. He had to turn a double play and uh, jump up in the air and get taken out at second base. So it was uh, it was interesting, but the guys did a really good job. Man, that that that's fun. So your gig was to make sure it looked realistic. This yeah, is how real. you yeah, yeah exactly. And, and that that that's awesome. And um, what was what was Charlie like? Any 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 glimpses of the future craziness that Charlie Sheen was going to show the world no, at that time? You no, know, I was dealing with I was dealing with my family was there quite a bit of time, so I was dealing with these guys on the field. I didn't spend mm-hmm. I didn't spend any time. You know, I don't drink, and so I don't, I wasn't in the bar, wasn't hanging out. Some of them were obviously, but mm-hmm. uh, I just didn't uh, didn't hang out with them. And uh, you know, they were. They did their job. I did mine, and and uh, I had fun. I had fun. This, you know, I, I was of the opinion last year, uh, Ken, that the White Sox should have made a big deal about the 100-year anniversary of the 1919 season, just because I know that it's considered scandalous. But as we've gone on, history happened. You know what I mean? It, it, it's it's yeah. really. And you can't deny that the, a lot of those players were great, that the season was great, and that some of them did not cheat and all of that. I mean, as you look back on it, having been involved that closely, what's your thought on Shoeless Joe and the White Sox overall from 1919? Well, it's sad. I mean, the, I was in the era where we uh, our, our, our basic salary when we started was $7,500. My wife told me, said, well, my dad made more than that as a minister. He made 8000 and then now it's over 600000 I think, to start out, which is, I don't know, maybe that's a little bit too much. Who knows? But back then, they they were taken advantage of. Eddie Seacock was going to win 30 games and get a 10000 or $5,000 bonus, and uh, Comiskey didn't pitch him. So, you know, it, it's, it's a, every, every era is different, and, you know, I was, I was just blessed to be able to play I, I love it. It was. It's great to look back on it now 
you know, and give it some thought as to, well, what would I have done, you know, a little bit different. Yeah, understood. Um, when when Ken was a manager at Birmingham, you had Robin Ventura, you had Craig Grayback, Little Hurt, and you had Frank Thomas, the Big Hurt. Did you know that Frank was going to be special when you were managing him in the minor leagues, Ken? Yeah, I mean, when you, he's like kind of like Bo Jackson. When he hit a fly ball to center, you're thinking, oh, that's hit pretty good. But And then you look up and the ball's over the fence by 40 feet. You know, so... <laughs> I told Frank one thing when when he left to go to the big leagues. I said, just don't try to pull the ball. Keep hitting the ball straight away, and if you you can do it, no problem. And he mm. had such a good eye. Uh, you know, he was he was always into the count two and zero, oh, three and one. You know, which made a hitter's count, obviously. So he got a lot of good pitches ahead eventually. See, see, some of that that baseball wisdom it still stands, right? I mean, because if you it, that'll help you see the ball a little bit longer if you tr- if you're trying to uh, to wait exactly. and hit it to center, right? And, exactly. And, yeah. And I'll I'll mention real quickly, Craig Graybeck. I had uh, the first year I had Ventura and Graybeck, Richie Amaral, uh, Matt Marullo, and some of the pitchers. And we had seven guys go to the big leagues from that Double A team. And then Frank was on the next year's team. But Graybeck, I I didn't have a fourth place hitter. And Grayback was about five six and weighed 145 pounds, and he was my most consistent hitter. So I put him in as the fourth place hitter. He hit 87 RBIs, was my MVP, and came into my office in August and said, "Skip, I said, what's up, Gravy? He says, uh, you know, if I lose another pound, I'm going under 140." I said, well, every day coming into the clubhouse, stay in here, don't go out, don't work out, just go out and play the game. You know, I couldn't afford to lose him. And then he, he uh, Robin got hurt and was out for 19 games. Grayback played third base just as well as Robin did. So it, he was an amazing athlete. Wow, that's awesome. Oh, to be 80 years old and sound as perky and be as thoughtful and have my wits about me like you do, Ken Berry. Oh, my goodness. I, 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 a boy can dream. Ken Berry is an author, folks. He's written children's books, um, written a novel, and he's got another one brewing about baseball. There is a website you can go to, bandit16.com. Spell it out, 16. So bandit16.com to learn about all things Ken Berry. Ken, this has been an absolute privilege. Thanks so much. Anytime. All right. <laughs> How about that? How about that life in baseball? You scouted by Ted Lyons, part of the 1964 pennant race with the White Sox, when they won 98 games and didn't make it to the World Series. The 1967 pennant race I mentioned. You 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 end up managing Robin Ventura and Frank Thomas, and oh by the way, John Elway in the New York Penn League, and Jim Deshays. I learned yesterday, Deshays was on that team. Um, and they named the Little League after you. You go to an all-star game with Hank Aaron and Willie Mays, and you work on eight men out. He was also the final strikeout in the second longest all-star game. In 67, he was the final out. Tom Seaver struck him out. Yep, we talked about that game a little bit. The five hours and change, 30 strikeouts in that, in that all-star game. Um, man, just an incredible baseball life. That was really fun. 
It's hit and run on 670 to score. Um, Major League Baseball is great, but it's not essential to baseball conversation. See, I, I think there's value in that, in finding somebody with a tremendously interesting baseball life and just kind of delving into it and getting to know it a little bit. I hope you guys do out there uh, listening. And your listenership is extremely appreciated in these times, that's for sure. Um, wanna want to send congratulations to a brand new papa. When we come back, and then our man Chris Kampka will wrap up the show with us, the Sultan of Stat from NBC Sports Chicago. That's all still to come on Hit and Run here on 670 The Score. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. A little bouncer slowly toward Bryant. He will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. And the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. The Cubs come pouring out of the dugout jumping up and down like a bunch of delirious 10-year-olds. The Cubs have done it. The longest drought in the history of American sports is over and the celebration begins. Oh, wouldn't it be good to live in those shoes at that time we just did sean anderson 17 days of listening to those cubs games right here on the score that was pretty amazing and that is the final out of game seven that aired the other night friday right i think it was friday yes sir and um i have the best game seven story that's never been told i have the best one there's a lot of good ones out there but I have the best one, Sean. You'll have to you'll have to get a few drinks in me some night, um, and or you know or or times I have to get really desperate for content here on Hit and Run, you know, which of course might happen this uh, this year as it goes on. But Chris Bryant makes that play, as smiling as he falls to the ground. Right. Congratulations to Chris Bryant and his wife. And they just, he and his wife, Jessica, welcomed their new son. The 7th of April, Kyler Lee Bryant was born. These two have grown up together in Las Vegas. They've been dating since their freshman year of high school. And the the too-good-to-be-true saga of Chris Bryant as a human continues. Um, having a, Having a baby with his high school sweetheart. And he had said... Perhaps famously, I think this is really what I've been put on this earth to do is to be a dad, said Chris Bryant. I play baseball pretty good, but I'm just so excited for this new journey with my wife and my family. Honestly, I think this is going to be one of the best years of my life. Yeah, I, I bet it is. Good for you, Chris. Enjoy yourself. And there, you know, as we've talked with uh, with Danny Parkins, it's a pretty good time to have an infant at home right now because you can't go anywhere. Got nothing to do. So let's just hang out and watch the infant do things. Hey, is that an expression on his face of some kind? Nope, just gas. Well, that counts, you know? <laughs> you, you learn a lot, and there's nothing to do but watch and learn. But I was reminded of this, and I, I love it as a dad myself and as a baseball guy, 
I mean, somebody who has known the Bryant story for as long as I have and as we have together, you know what his father did with Chris. And somehow um, Chris did not turn into Todd Marinovich. And I guess his dad was not Marv Marinovich. I guess that's uh, <laughs> that's the best way for it not to happen. But his dad certainly did drive him and offer him all these incredible opportunities. Very common story. Michael Kopech's dad kind of gave uh, up his life as a lawyer to help Michael Kopech achieve some baseball dreams as a kid. And um, that relationship has been an interesting and challenging one for Kopech. But for Bryant, you know, his dad was a minor league player and received hitting instruction from Ted Williams, including that uppercut swing that he went and then taught to Chris. And you know, his dad is his hitting coach and always has been and always will be. And Mike Bryant never made the bigs. Chris did and did pretty well. And here were Chris's thoughts with uh, Bernstein and Connor McKnight from the week at Scorehouse out there in Arizona. Chris's thoughts on whether his son was going to be a baseball player or not. Well, I don't even know if this is going to answer your question, but for me, I kind of don't want my kid to play baseball. <laughs> Why not? Just the stuff that we go through on a daily basis in the game and, like, you know, what I go through and the grinding and the, the, the pressure you put on yourself, the expectations you put on yourself. It's like, man, I don't want to go through that all over again with my kid because that will be tenfold, you know. I'd rather have him play golf where no one's screaming at you and, you know, you just – you're out there enjoying the, the birds chirping and the sun and you're just – you know, perfect conditions and the grass is perfectly green and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, I don't know. But Do you I, think your dad would say the same thing? Uh, about what? I mean, after having gone and lived through the whole thing and all of the all the vicarious uh, pressures and pleasures, et cetera, you know, this is, this is sort of a, a, a family tradition here that you're like, yeah, no, rather not. Yeah, I mean, I guess it'd be, it'd be a little different just because, you know, he... Um, he didn't make it to the level where I'm at. Obviously, he had pro baseball and like the pressure there. And it's, but it's like, I feel like I've you know kind of gotten to that mountaintop with you know winning awards and winning a World Series and stuff like that. And it's like, where else can you go from here? It's lonely up there. There's there's nobody really in that realm. And you know, I've you know, if my kid wants to play baseball, he's always going to be reaching for that and like i gotta be as good as dad because he was an mvp and you know world series champion did all this cool stuff and it's like i don't know it's kind of a put your kid in a rough spot but of course if he wants wants to play baseball and he won't stop picking up a bat i'm gonna be like all right it is i could i could teach you something (laughs) i'm sure i'm sure grandpa will step in and take care of it if if need be chris but man, I, I, I just think that's fascinating. And, and I love that he's been thinking about it like that. He's going to be a good dad, right? He's a very mature kid, um, very thoughtful young man, as we know. And the fact that he doesn't want the kid to feel that pressure, like, look, no, it's okay. Do something else. I, 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 and as a dad myself, I'm just, I just want to support whatever my, my kid is into. Right now, that's a lot of video games. I guess that is a career, but I'm not... I'm having a hard time supporting the video games quite as much as, as he wants to play them. But I, I, I love the thought from Brian, like his dad drove him and all you got to do, all you got to do is make the big leagues and you've out achieved dad. Well, Chris's kid, you have to be better than rookie of the year, MVP and world series champ. Good luck, kid. Good luck. Everybody takes a very special alpha to still want to do it after that.
takes a Ken Griffey Jr. kind of alpha or a Barry Bonds kind of alpha, you know, to still want to beat out what Papa did. But congrats to Chris Bryant. And uh, I hope your uh, I hope your kid finds some very fun things to do that you can support. And if it's not baseball, then so it goes. 670, the score is where you are. Top of the hour is a Bears Sunday. Top of the hour is Jeff Joniak first to give you some of his thoughts on the game that we're going to play. And then it's Seahawks at Bears, the divisional playoff game from January 16th, 2010. After that, Zach Zaidman and Tom Thayer are on together to talk Bears. I'm sure they'll touch on that game a little bit. And then we've got the NFL draft this week. So Zaidman and Thayer after the game. Les Grobstein is on at midnight, 12 to 5 a.m. for Grobber. And then onward, the score broadcast day will roll. Hugh Darvish, that's a whole nother subject. A whole nother subject. But it is a baseball show, Tom, so we appreciate you hopping in. Let's, um, let's talk to our man, Chris Kampka, Cam Connections. We do it every Sunday. And I know he's got nuggets on both guests who've been on the show, as well as greats who have left and come back. We'll do that next with Chris Kampka right here on Hit and Run on 670 The Score. Sundays at 11.40 or so means... I get a chance to talk to Chris Kamka, my guy at C Kamka on Twitter, the Sultan of Stat from NBC Sports Chicago, one of the great baseball follows for awesome information. What up, Chris? How are you this morning? Had some baseball talk is much needed for all of us. Our game. Our game, Chris. That's right. You appear on this show. Or work on this show in any way. Or hell, you listen to this show. It's our game. Um, I had some fun talking to Greg Maddox today. And Ken Berry. I'm blown away, blown away by what kind of talker Ken Berry is at age 78. My God. Um, but uh, I, I saw while I was talking to Maddox, you were tweeting out some, some information about baseball greats who played in this town, left as Maddox did, and then came back as Maddox did. Yeah, I think the inspiration was um, the great Mini Minoso, who's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, he, 60 years ago today, he returned to the White Sox after two seasons with the Indians. And on opening day, he had a grand slam, and then he hit a walk-off home run. So it was two home runs and six RBIs. It's the first multi-homer game on opening day in White Sox history. It remains the only grand slam on opening day in White Sox history in the season opener. And the only walk-off home run in the season opener in White Sox history. All still. And it was a, a great return for the great mini. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Who else did you tweet out? It's a Harold Baines, right? Baines, who, yeah. uh, who went, to, Baines. Went, to te- went to Texas in the Sosa trade, right? Yeah, so he went to Texas, and then he ended up going to the A's, and then Baltimore, and then Cleveland, and he'd come back twice. Um, 40 years ago today, he had his first major league home run off Jim Palmer, no less. Three of his first eight career home runs were off Hall of Famers. Um, One of those Hall of Famers is Fergie Jenkins, who's another one of the Chicago greats who left and came back. Jenkins came back to the Cubs in 82 and um, 82, 83, and he was managed by Lee Elia, 
And they were teammates for the 1968 Cubs. And you wouldn't see a Cub manager who managed one of his former teammates again until, well, this season when David Ross is going to do it. Wow. See, that's interesting because in thinking about Ross, I had come up with a bunch of different managers who, um, who managed their former teammates just like three years prior. I think Kenny Rosenthal had written the piece, and it was Lou Pinella as a Yankee, um, Joe Torre as an Angel, John Wathen as a Kansas City Royals catcher and then manager, and Ross. But you just gave me another, Lee Elia, huh? Yeah, Lee Elia, man, Shrugie Jenkins. I mean, that, as far as Cubs goes, that's the last one. And there's wow. a few other ones, especially when you have, like, player managers. Um, it doesn't really count, player managers. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, you know, getting going on those. And then there's, of course, Greg Maddox, who we, we heard from earlier. Well, what a great career. I mean, how many Hall of Fame pitchers do you know, all-time great pitchers, mind you, that made their first major league appearance as a pinch runner? Of course, Maddox went in there and went on to pitch in that game. But it was so like, a, hey, Chris, Chris, it was like a 15, 16 inning game or something like that, right? Yep. Yep. Against the Astros. And I think it was a, it was um, the completion of the game that started the day before. It was one of those mm. deals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but how great was that run from 92 to 95 for Maddox? So he had 124 starts. He went 75 and 29. With a one nine eight ERA over that four year stretch. Wow. Well, so okay, so let's strip away the seventy five, right? Take away the games where he got a win. In the remaining forty nine games, he was zero and twenty nine with a three oh two ERA, <laughs> which is great. And it was also better than Randy Johnson, Tom Glavin, Mike Messino, Roger Clemens, and John Smoltz in all of their games combined over that span. Wow, so, let's let's I mean, think about that. So the games, the games that he didn't win, he was right, still so, better. He was still better during that span than. Give me those names again. There's some pretty yeah, good names. Randy Johnson, Tom Glavin, Mike Messina, Roger Clemens, John Smoltz, all Cy Young Award winners except for Messina, but he's in the Hall of Fame, so it's fine. Wow, wow, that that that's crazy. I remember, I remember reading that the stretch that Pedro Martinez had, um, his like three-year run, that and you know what I'm talking about, as compared to his peers, was that, akin, was, was was akin to Babe Ruth compared to his peers, in you know in, in 26 and 27 when Babe Ruth was hitting 54 and then hitting 60. Like that's what we were talking about. With what Pedro, it has to be pretty close in terms of what Maddox was doing as compared to his peers at the time. Oh, I, I think that Pedro stretch is the finest stretch in Major League history in pitching, um, quite clearly. Uh, and I even had a number of that. I mean, in 2000, he had an OPS plus against of 18. So that, that's my Pedro Martinez nugget for that. But hmm. Try to wrap your head around that. Wow. Um, so, Amazing. yeah, 18% of league average. Essentially, wow. so I mean, yeah. but 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 I mean, take nothing away from Maddox. Maddox is just extraordinary, considering the fact that in a stretch of 41 games from '96 to '97, he had no more than one unintentional walk. <laughs> 
Man, I, I love that. And I, I gave this one earlier, the four pitchers to top 3,000 strikeouts while having allowed fewer than 1,000 walks are Fergie Jenkins, Kurt Schilling, Pedro, and Maddox. That's it. That's another so. one that I absolutely love. And he had 999 walks, so he got just under there. But if you take a look at the way that he improved in his major league career, so what I did was I broke down the 999 walks into three groups of 333. Now I'm going to tweet this out in case anyone wants to reference this. Awesome. But, okay, so his first 333 walks, he had 579 strikeouts to go with them. His second 333 walks, he had 1,492 strikeouts to go with the second 333 walks. And the third set of 333 walks, it was 1,300 strikeouts. So, I mean, the strikeout-to-walk ratio went through the roof. And he just, I mean, he was just a guy who just figured it out. He Mm. got better. There there were a couple really money quotes in the conversation from last hour with Greg Maddox, which you'll be able to hear via radio.com and 670thescore.com. One of them was... Uh, about really that that the only job of a pitcher, two things a pitcher has to do, locate and change speeds. That's it. Whoever does that best is going to win the game. And he doesn't care about the mile per hour of the fastball. Just locate and change speeds. That's all. Um, And then the other one was that he was trying to get batters not to hit the pitch. Sure. But if they did hit it, he wanted them to hit it in front of the outfielders. Just, just get him to hit it in front of the outfielders. As long as you do that, whoever does that the best is probably also going to win the game. Sensible. Well, I mean, you call him the professor, and a job of the professor is to have a lesson plan and then present the information as easily digestible as possible. Hmm. And it doesn't get much simpler than that, does it? No, <laughs> no, it does not, which is why so many of us think he'd be a great pitching coach if he wanted to do it. He's been a voluntary pitching coach at UNLV while his son is playing there. Uh, been an assistant in the Rangers organization, been an assistant in the Dodgers organization for Andrew Friedman. Um, but uh, nothing, nothing quite so MLB friendly as his brother, uh, Mike Maddox. And, um, and before we get out of here, uh, Chris, how about Ken Berry? How about that life in baseball with Ken Berry, who we talked to uh, earlier this hour? Outrageous. Yeah, it's just great. I, I, like you said, I love when you can take a player that people may not be familiar with. Hey, let's learn about this guy. And there's so much fascinating stuff in there. And I'll add another one. So Please. July 25th, 1967, Ken Berry in a walk-off home run with the White Sox down 5-4 to four in the 16th inning to give the White Sox a walk-off win. Well, game one of that doubleheader, J.C. Martin hit a home walk-off home run. And that's the only time in White Sox history that you've had a walk-off homer in both games of a doubleheader. Ken Berry is right there. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's fun right there. That's beautiful stuff. Chris, you're the goods. What, what are you into this week in baseball? I mean, hey, this week in baseball. What, what, are you, what are you into this week? What have you been watching and doing? Um, you know, whatever's on. A lot of 2005 White Sox, because we've been airing those on NBC Sports Chicago. And we're in the part of the season where Frank Thomas came back and just reliving the Frank Thomas magic. I I will never get tired of watching Frank Thomas home runs. Just the way he'd kind of lean over the plate and just still pull it over the fence in the line drive. Oh, my goodness. I, yeah. I miss Frank Thomas. With, with with one foot in the air, just didn't it didn't yeah. make any sense. 
you know? Yes, love that foot in the air. I mean, yeah. don't try to mimic that. It ain't going to work <laughs> for you. You have to be absurdly strong with a brilliant eye and hand-eye coordination like Frank to even hit a ball like that out of the infield. All right, Chris, you're the goods, man. Have a great week. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right, you're the best. That's Chris Kampka at C. Kampka on Twitter. Um, we are broadcasting to you live right now from the Hyundai Studios. And tomorrow at 9 a.m., you should know about a few things. Bernsey will be co-hosting tomorrow with Will Perdue. So it's Bernstein and Will Perdue tomorrow morning at 9 as they react to The Last Dance, which debuts tonight uh, on ESPN, as everybody knows and is waiting for. Also, Dick Butkus is going to join them at 10 a.m. That's pretty cool. To talk about Doug Buffone, tomorrow's the fifth anniversary of Doug's death. Man, that's crazy. What a, what a dark and sad day that was um, for those of us at the score. Tomorrow, Lawrence Holmes has Jason Goff at noon and Terry Boers at 1 p.m. on the score as well. Um, by the way, at NBC Sports Chicago, Chris Campazone, I, I got to give it to them. They are smartly, starting tomorrow night, running every game from the 1998 Bulls playoff run as we're all going 98 crazy for that Jordan documentary, which uh, I, of course, will be watching tonight along with my wife. Cannot wait. All right, this was a really fun show. Thank you to Ken Berry, the bandit. Thank you to Greg Maddox for the opportunity and the time. Thank you to Chris Kampka. Thank you to all of you at 670 The Score and uh, for listening, for calling, for texting, for being involved. Really enjoy it and appreciate it. You can see me tomorrow on Cubs 360 on Marquee at 6 o'clock. And uh, we'll talk next week, if not before. Saturday morning for Inside the Clubhouse and Sunday morning for Hit and Run. Sean Anderson is the best. Thanks, buddy. Have a great day, everybody. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.